Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about Aventure, a new platform that's making venture capital available to the masses. It doesn't matter if you are an accredited or non-accredited investor. Aventure provides an opportunity to diversify your investment portfolio by providing access to investing in venture capital funds. The Aventure app provides everything you need to make startup investments, including extensive research material, seamless transaction processes, and allocation measures. For fund managers, Aventure seeks to help you streamline your operations and launch your fund. Now, typically, venture capital and startup investments are liquid, which is a major pain point in our industry. Aventure is fixing this by offering periodic withdrawals for its investors. I and many others in the industry are so excited about this launch. Their first fund launch is coming early next year. So if you want to be the first in the know, join their waitlist at aventure.vc. That's A-V-E-N-T-U-R-E dot V-C. Also check the link in the show notes. Aventure is a California-based fintech company and operates independently from investment advisors on its platform who may be registered as investment advisors in the U.S. or qualify for exempt reporting status. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying the show, also subscribe to our newsletter at theconsumervc.substack.com. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Thank you, Luke Vernon, for the intro to our guest today, Davis Smith. Davis is the founder and CEO of Cotopaxi. Cotopaxi builds gear that fuels both outdoor experiences and global change. We discuss what he's learned as a serial entrepreneur, the origin story of Cotopaxi, how he thought about mission and differentiation in the outdoor apparel space, which is really competitive, as well as how he thinks about differentiation with Patagonia, and much, much more. Without further ado, here's Davis. Davis, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Mike. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Um, so you started you started three businesses, right? Pooltable.com, baby.com.br, and now Cotopaxi. What was your initial attraction to you know e-commerce, digital native businesses, and also creating real physical products as opposed to like software businesses, for example? You know, it, it's a really good question. I'm not exactly sure why, other than the fact that like I just love <laughs> stuff. I love product. I love touching and feeling stuff. And I, I'll tell you, it's so fun to see people using your product as well. And especially with Cotopaxi, where people are wearing backpacks or jackets, it's like, you see it in the streets, you see it at the airport, you know, you see people using your product, there's something really fulfilling about that. Um, I will say like, you know, for me, when I was in high school, I moved to the United States when I was a teenager. And uh, when I was in high school, my high school had a class called outdoor clothing. And it was a sewing class where you learn to make outdoor gear. And if I'm being honest, I took the class because there were a bunch of cute girls in the class and I thought it'd be fun. And so a buddy of mine and I took it together, dude, but we loved it. Like we made all this bunch of our own gear and like I was wearing some of my own like pants and uh, it was just a, it was a a really cool class. And I I started loving physical product and, um, you know, designing and creating. Uh, and then, you know, my very first business before I started the pooltables.com business, uh, I was kind of dabbling in some different ideas. And um, I was, you know, this is the early 2000s. I discovered eBay and uh, a friend of mine was uh, was working for eBay 
And I, I was just kind of picking his brain and like, you know, trying to understand what eBay was. And I was like, you know, who are, uh, you know, who are the people that are selling a lot of stuff on eBay? And he was telling me about these different companies. And I, I started thinking, you know, I love, I love scuba diving, but have, you know, I had no money. I like, could never go on a trip or anything. And, but I, I'd find people were selling all their scuba gear and I could buy their whole set of gear and then I'd sell it one piece at a time, like the regulator here and the BC jacket there and all these things. And I could make a few hundred dollars every time I did this. And it was just like, it was kind of cool to, to be able to just see how that, you know, the invisible hand that you read about in economics, uh, you know, how that supply and demand worked. And so I just kind of got hooked. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I, I appreciate you. Uh, mention that story about how you were, you know, buying scuba gear, taking it apart and kind of and then being able to like make a few hundred bucks from it and kind of flip it, um, which I think is um, awesome. Um, and then as well as kind of being hooked on like consumer products um, as well, just overall and, and kind of physical goods and creating, you know, uh, brands as well, which obviously would uh, really excited to to dive in on Cotopaxi. Were you were you always like an outdoorsy type of person, like an outdoorsy type of kid? Yeah, I always loved the outdoors. My dad, um, so my family moved to Latin America when I was four years old. And um, I've spent a lot, you know, all my childhood and a lot of my adult life in Latin America. And so my dad was, my dad is an adventurer. You know, he always has some trip planned, some adventure planned. And as a kid, we would go, uh, you know, we'd go to like these uninhabited islands and we'd make our own spears and spear fish and eat coconuts to survive for a week. Or we'd you know, we'd go, we made our own raft and we floated the Amazon river, you know, fishing for piranha, like kind of crazy stuff. And, uh, <laughs> awesome. I, you know, at the time I thought that was normal behavior, you know, to do that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, but, you know, we just loved, you know, when we lived in Ecuador, when I was a kid, as a teenager, like we, we'd, we'd spend weekends going and climbing different mountains around us and, uh, climbing up to volcanoes and, it was just uh, something that I just really loved. I was, you know, in Boy Scouts uh, when I lived in South America. And um, it was, yeah, an important part of my childhood. And I just always have had a lot of fondness for the outdoors and for adventure and just the way I feel when I'm outside exploring. So, no, that's, that's, um, I, I really appreciate as well uh, you sharing that. I mean, how, how did Cotopaxi start i know that you were kind of coming off you know baby.com.br and kind of exiting your position in that company um leaving it what was like the idea for for Cotopaxi? because from what i've gathered just from 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 doing a little bit of research it seemed like baby.com.br was very like opportunistic in terms of like um why you started it in that you were kind of um um, saw what like Mark Laurie was doing and like releasing baby products. It was such a large business with diapers.com that he built and um, maybe tried to replicate that or, you know, take that and, and move in Brazil. But what, what I would say, what was the opportunity that you were seeing for, for Cotopaxi in terms of when you actually were like thinking about starting it? Yeah, this is a, this is a really great point. It was, it was a very different, there was a very different reason for why I was starting it than my first two businesses. And, and to be clear, the reason I pursued entrepreneurship in the first place was to find a way to help people. Uh, I I always assumed I'd work in the nonprofit world, and it was a mentor of mine in college, a man who had been a successful entrepreneur, who had you know he's around sixty years old, had sold his business, and was now uh, he was using his the wealth that he created to go fight poverty, and he was doing all this good in the world, and I wanted to work for him, and he instead convinced me I should be an entrepreneur. So I had that in my mind. I just didn't know how to like. I didn't know how to take impact and take a business and like 
do them together. Like it, it, it there wasn't, it didn't, obvi- you know, there wasn't an obvious way for me to connect those dots. And so I spent, you know, 10 years building these two different businesses and they were more opportunistic. It was like, Hey, what opportunities exist? Uh, you know, what opportunities exist for me to go build something? Um, and that could, that could maybe work a business that would, that would be successful where customers would come by. And, um, you know, I, Mark Laurie was building diapers.com and he later built jet.com and right. I'd been connected to him through a, a Wharton connection. And I was building the pool table business, watching him build this business that was scaling so quickly. And that's when I realized, wow, I didn't even know what total addressable market was Tam. And it was like, <laughs> Oh, that matters. Now I understand. Like, that's a much bigger, there's a lot more babies in the world than there are pool tables. And so, um, you know, just, uh, when I was in business school, started exploring these different ideas of what I could do next. And, uh, you know, having grown up in Latin America, saw that opportunity in Brazil, but with, with, with Cotopaxi, it really emerged out of this desire to find a way to help people. And then I, I, I was able to say, okay, like if I could go build a business that could go fight poverty, that could use its profits to go make the world a better place, what business could I build? And what's big enough that it could actually go have a massive impact if the business worked? And that's where I kind of landed on the outdoor industry, this you know a space I was really passionate about. That said, very, very competitive. So many outdoor brands already, very large outdoor brands that have very big, strong purpose and mission as well. And so I knew going in, it was going to be a very hard battle to go enter th- that that space, but I, I believed it would work. And I believed if we could build a brand that focused on people that, uh, you know, customers would come and support us. Was it also a bit of a mind shift um, when you thought about business? Because it seemed like we talked about the nonprofit world. It seemed like you wanted to, you know, be successful in business, but then go back and, you know, with, you know, maybe the money you created, um, go back and really actually help people with, yeah. Um, with it, where at, where it seems like Cotopaxi, you it was it was an endeavor to actually try to do both at the same time. Exactly, and 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 the reason why I thought of it, you know, the full, those first ten years, my thought was like, hey, I'm, my job is to go make money so that I can go use the money to help others. It's because that's what I'd seen, right? It was like right. that's what that mentor of mine, Steve Gibson, had done when I was in college. That's what I'd seen him do. That's what you know we'd seen the whole world had watched Bill Gates and do that. And there's so many examples of people that had done this, gone and created wealth. And, uh, and then gone and used the wealth to do some good in the world. So that was the model I knew and saw. It wasn't until I was in business school that I started seeing others doing something different. I started, you know, I heard of Tom's shoes. I, you know, I had some classmates that started Warby Parker, uh, you know, that was using its business to go fight, uh, you know, help people get access to eye, eye care in the developing world. And it was like, wow, there's like a way that I can do this together and I don't have to wait till I'm 60 years old or 70 years old. I can figure out a way to do it now and do them simultaneously. And it turns out it is possible. It's also really, really hard. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, so I understand you were always passionate about the outdoors. You you know, grew up very outdoorsy in you know, South America and also in the US. And um, as you mentioned earlier, um, outdoor apparel, very competitive. Um, climate. I don't believe you had experience before in the actual apparel no. world. What what was kind of when you were leaving, you know, baby.com.br and figuring out what you want to do next, why did you also what were the kind of the other 
elements that maybe landed you that what became, you know, Cotopaxi? Yeah. So, you know, for me, it really came down to a few things. Yes, I did not have experience uh, in the apparel space. I didn't have any experience there. That said, what I did have experience in doing was like building a brand. Uh, I understood e-commerce. I understood physical retail stores. Like my e-commerce businesses, uh, you know, my, my first business had physical retail. I learned how to build teams. Uh, I under, I learned how to raise capital from investors. So I had all these skills that would allow me to go build the business what I didn't have was like expertise in the, in, in making the product itself. Like I mentioned, I took that class in high school that, that that's kind of the extent of my experience in terms of like making apparel or outdoor gear. So, um, you know, I needed to go bring in experts. I, and I, I went in, I went on LinkedIn and I just started looking for award-winning pack designers and apparel designers. And I found a few reached out to them randomly on LinkedIn. They were nice enough to respond to me. And we had a, a Skype call, and uh, I kind of told them like what my vision was and uh, hard to believe, but people said, yes, the people said, yes, I, I want to be part of building something. I want to go make a difference in the world. And so, you know, we started putting together that team. Um, but for me, I, I had a lot of confidence in my ability to go build. Like I, I believed I had the experience and the skills I needed to go build the business. Um, I just, if I got the right team around me. When I, when I think as well about, apparel brands that, you know, are making change in the world and are very kind of vocal about change. I, I, I immediately think of, of Patagonia and I'm wondering what was kind of going through your mind in terms of a differentiation maybe from Patagonia or how you viewed, um, what change and impact actually look like from your perspective? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I have to admit, I didn't know a lot about Patagonia when I started and, that may sound crazy. Like I, I did know of the brand, but I didn't, I didn't know about their social mission um, mm -hmm. actually at all uh, until I, I was starting Cotopaxi and someone mentioned, Hey, you should go read this book called let my people go surfing by Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia. And I read this book and it was like, Oh my gosh, this guy is like, he's amazing. He's been doing this, but like a different focus, um, you know, and a different personality. You know, if you read his book, if you hear him speak, like, one thing he says over and over again is I'm a pessimist and he has kind of a, a more pessimistic view of the world. And um, that kind of, you know, has guided their brand. And, uh, you know, he's been very focused on, on fighting and, and really trying to affect climate protection and change. And right. I'm so grateful for that. But like my personality is very different. I'm, I'm kind of like the eternal optimist. I'm, I, I to, to a fault probably, but, uh, and I, I love people and, uh, I, I, I want to fight poverty. And like, uh, you know, for me, it was like, he's doing what I, what I'm wanting to do, but he's doing it in a kind of a different realm and maybe a different approach. Um, but yeah, I was definitely very inspired when I started learning more about what Patagonia was doing. Um, but you know, growing up in Latin America, the Patagonia brand is not known in Latin America. It's like, it's not, People know Colombia. They know the North Face. They don't really know Patagonia. So, um, you know, I'd lived in the States long enough that I kind of been exposed to the brand to some degree, but I, I didn't understand the social mission behind it. No, and that's, I mean, it's interesting too with, with, with Cotopaxi, just as an observer, you know, I think you can kind of see that optimism too in the brand just because with all the bright colors and kind yeah. of just, you know, in, just a lot, there's a lot of personality and you kind of, you kind of know when someone's wearing like a Cotopaxi um, outfit just because it's usually pretty bright and very, yeah. um, very, 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 very interesting. Yeah, you, you, when you see the product, you definitely know uh, that it's Cotopaxi. Although interestingly, you know, 
I, the other day I saw someone wearing a jacket. I was like, oh, someone's wearing one of our jackets. And then I was like, look closely. And I was like, wait a second. That's not, that's not our jacket. <laughs> so like we've definitely seen everyone from Patagonia to others, like, you know, kind of adopting this color, this kind of more funky, crazy color story. So that's kind of fun to see. And uh, I think earlier in my entrepreneurial days, I would have been like really bothered by it. Now it's like, I'm in my forties, like whatever, you know, it's like, bring it on. You know, it's, this is great. More color in the space. We need more color instead of just blacks and grays. So it's all good. Love it. Love it. So, um, back to, uh, like when you figured out that you wanted to start Cotopaxi and, you know, the early days, what was kind of the first step when you, when you, um, when you ultimately decided this is what you wanted to do for your life, um, do with your life, um, professionally, um, was it go out and fundraise, um, immediately? Was it figuring out the social, the sourcing and manufacturing? Like what were kind of like the first steps, um, um, with, with Paxi? Yeah. You know, it was a combination of a lot of things at once, but when I had the idea, um, I was in Brazil and I, I let, you know, I let my team, my, you know, my team, I built a business in Brazil. And so I, I let my, my board and my co-founder know that I was leaving and I started working on this, this idea. And I think the first steps was building the team. It was like finding the people that I needed to go build the brand. And then I went and spoke, I, you know, focused time on reaching out to investors and starting to get some money, uh, in the door. I first, it was just friends and family, some, uh, my parents, my in-laws, like a few entrepreneur friends in Brazil that all kind of threw in a little bit of money. And, um, you know, those dollars kind of helped us get the ball rolling. And, uh, we then had, uh, once I had the team, I had, you know, these designers that were starting to design product. I went out to the Philippines and visited and, um, you know, we started designing product and then I was, you know, back in the U S fundraising again. And, um, so it was kind of, all at once, just kind of saying, Hey, we believe in this. We believe it's going to work. And, uh, I also knew I needed money. Uh, I couldn't do this on my own to go build a brand that could be, you know, the next iconic outdoor brand, a, a billion dollar business. It was like, that wasn't something I could do on my own. And I'd left my business in Brazil with my equity behind in that business. So I, it was really wow. kind of starting all over again, uh, which if I'm being honest, it was very scary. I was terrified. I was very afraid of failure. Um, and how that people, how might, you know, people think of me and, you know, what I would do if I didn't work and, you know, all those concerns that I think maybe every entrepreneur has, but at the same time, like at the, my very core, I believe this needed to happen. It needed to exist. We needed a brand focused on fighting poverty, on transforming and changing capitalism for the better. And so, um, it was, you know, it was that that kind of gave me the courage to keep pushing forward. That's awesome. That's, that's, um, yeah, I mean, I can't, I, I can't even imagine how, how scary, scary of a moment that is, um, when you've left your previous company and then you're starting on a new venture and, you know, you have to fundraise, you have to build, you obviously have to build the team, um, figuring out, you know, sourcing, manufacturing, all of it, um, at once. Um, what were some of like the, maybe when you were talking with investors, um, what did they believe in? Like, what was the, um, what were kind of like parts, um, that the ones that you were able to convince to kind of come along with you for the journey, um, what kind of attracted them to, you know, Cotopaxi and, and the brand, um, as well. Um, and then also what kind of didn't work or resonate with investors just because it's so hard, you know, in apparel, 
um, and also physical goods. It's so hard to raise money from investors in the first place. So would love to kind of hear that from your perspective. Yeah. So my first thought was uh, that maybe impact investors would better understand what I was trying to build. Uh, because one of I had an attorney that I'd worked with in my previous business. Uh, he was based in New York. And you know, I told him what I was wanting to build, told him I, I wanted to incorporate as a benefit corporation, this new type of entity. And you know, this is the end of 2013. And his advice was to not do it. He's like, look, it's just too new. No investor understands what that even is. They're going to be hesitant to invest if you're going to commit to giving away money before you've ever made money. Why don't you figure out the business first and then you can convert to a benefit corporation later on? And honestly, it's probably good advice, but like, I just didn't want to take it. Like, I just felt like this is the very core of who we are. And if there's an investor that doesn't want to invest in us because we're doing good, then that's just not the right fit for us anyways. And, but then I started thinking, you know, maybe I need to talk to impact investors. Maybe they'll really understand this. And so I went out to San Francisco, met with some impact investors. They, they, they said no so fast. It was like one of those conversations, like five minutes in, you're like, okay, can I just leave now? Cause like, we both know what's happening here. Like, uh, don't need, don't need to waste anyone's time. Um, but it, it ended up being, you know, for that first round, that seed round that I, I raised a $3 million seed round. And this is before we'd sold anything. It was just literally a PowerPoint and a vision of this brand. And I, I pitched a hundred different investors, uh, angel investors, impact investors, wow. and, uh, venture capitalists. And I ended up having, I mean, obviously a lot of no's, uh, the majority of those pitches were no's, but ended up getting a, a number of yeses, including um, a woman named Kirsten Green from Forerunner Ventures, who's an amazing, yeah. brilliant investor, had invested in a lot of consumer brands from uh, Dollar Shave Club to Birchbox to Warby Parker, Bonobos, uh, Outdoor Voices Away. I mean, the list goes on and yeah. on. And so when she believed, it gave me a lot of confidence, like, wow, like, you know, she understands the space very well. She led the round and we ended up having a number of other great investors that kind of jumped in and participated. And, um, you know, I think what resonated with those investors was I, I had some experiences as an, as an entrepreneur. So that, I think that helped. Uh, it gave me some credibility. Uh, I think what really spoke to them, though, was like I was so deeply passionate about this idea of using a business and a brand to be a force for good. And I led with that story. I mean, that was the first thing I talked about was this desire to do good in the world and that I believed a brand could do it and we could, and that people would support a brand like this. And I put together some slides that can, that kind of showed that young consumers care about this more than other generations, that they're willing to switch brands uh, at, a, at a higher rate than other generations. And um, so that's what kind of resonated with them. But, you know, I got plenty of no's, including uh, quite a few that said, uh, I, I even have an email that literally says like, we don't believe you can compete with Patagonia. And, so, <laughs> uh, you know, so yeah, got plenty of rejection along the way as well, which is always healthy and good too. So once you, after you raised, um, that $3 million round, um, and I appreciate you walking us through that. Um, what was then, since you had some, you, you had 3 million in the bank, what was then kind of like the first steps that you needed to do in order to start building the brand? Yeah. So what we did next was uh, obviously we needed we needed to have the product, uh, and yeah. so we worked on the product. Helpful. But I, it had to be more than the product. You know, uh, one of uh, one of my friends who was one of the co-founders of Warby Parker from business school, he said, "You only launch once, so you got to make it good." Mm -hmm. And so the way we ended up launching this brand was we ended up having an event that we call the Questival. 
this 24 hour adventure race. And that adventure race, uh, we allowed people to basically form teams of up to six people and, uh, they could, we give them a list of hundreds of challenges they could go choose from and they went and created their own adventure. So they, they were choosing their own adventure over this 24 hours. They could go on hikes or mountain bike trails or go make it their own shelter and sleep in it or catch a fish or go volunteer in the community. Whatever experience they wanted to have sleeping in the tent in their backyard or just having to sleep over in their, in, the, in their family room with all their friends, like whatever it was, they got different points based on the difficulty of whatever the challenges they were doing. And the way we got people to know about this event was we bought two llamas and wow. uh, off the on, you know Craigslist <laughs> online classifieds. We found these two llamas, and we just went around campuses with our two llamas, and uh, you know through that we started building awareness around this event that was going to be coming up and the launch of this new brand. I literally wore a Patagonia jacket with a sticker, a Cotabaxi sticker like on top of the, lo- the logo of Patagonia. Cause it was like, I need to go, we didn't make any, we didn't, have, we hadn't sold any product yet. We didn't make any jackets, you know? So I had to like, you know, represent our brand and um, you know, we, but we ended up having everyone that did the race got one of our backpacks. So we launched the brand with five backpacks and one of the backpacks was this really simple drawstring top bag, but really high quality, really great product. The only way we could make it fast enough for this event was we actually had to use remnants from this factory, leftover material from these other brands that are already in our space. All the brands you can think of, they use the same factory as us, right? So we're using all their leftover scraps to make these bags. And that kind of led accidentally to our this huge story of our brand, which is color and using remnant material, a, a huge majority of our product is made of remnant material. And so, uh, but we had 5,000 people participate in that race. We had 30,000 social media posts the day that we launched of people using the product, uh, using those backpacks as they adventured in the outdoors, as they were giving service in the community. And it was an incredible and wild way to launch this new brand. Now, is that, when you say 5,000, was that like, um, was that just in... Um, a specific Lake. location like Salt Lake. So that was just in Salt Lake that yeah. you were kind of going around and making this event in Salt Lake. Okay, cool. Yeah. It. So we just did it in Salt Lake. And then we, after that event, you know, the, the event worked. So we went out to San Francisco and did one there. Then we went to Vegas, did one there, Seattle. And then now we, you know, we did like a hundred of those events over the first few years of the business to kind of build awareness around who we were. It's, it's funny because we talk a lot about the show about how entrepreneurs have said, you really have had to do things that don't scale. Like we've had on like Andy Dunn before and he was like really yeah. just ingrained in that, like do things that don't scale. Um, and you know, and that right there is such a perfect example about going to different cities and, you know, you know, buying a llama and, you know, taking the llama to different cities and like, you're, you know, you're, you're then yeah. just trying to, you're trying to just get uh promote enthusiasm and people actually, you know, doing this course, making it what they want to do. Um, but you know, promoting the brand, I mean, even just, you know, we're, we're in a Patagonia shirt and then, and then, and then just take out the Patagonia and put in uh, go to Paxi. That's like, um, I mean, just incredible, yeah. incredible. That's really cool. Yeah. And Andy Dunn is brilliant by the way. And he, he was one of the first believers. He wrote a check into our business in that with Kirsten. And he's the one that actually, I think he's the one that connected me with Kirsten green oh, wow. uh, from 400 in the first place. But, uh, you know, just a really, really great founder and someone I've really admired and loved following and learned a lot from over the years. That's awesome. That's really great. That's really great. So after this launch and this launch, you know, kind of goes viral. 
Um, like you have um, a lot of, you know, impressions and, and you kind of people are, are buzzing a little bit about Cotopaxi. What, what was then the, um, what was then did you do? Um, like, and, and how did you also a- approach product as well when it comes to actually like product lines? Well, I remember Andy saying, don't do too much product too early. And, you know, so did a bunch of our investors and we kind of didn't listen. And I, uh, honestly, like in some ways it worked out for us in other ways that we probably would have been wise to have been a little more cautious, but we, you know, when we, once the quest all happened, it was like, okay, now what, you know, it's like, we had this great launch. Now we have to, now we have to sell stuff and we have to do it online. And, um, you know, it felt honestly, it felt like we had this huge spike, this peak, like day one of the business. And it kind of like fell from there. And that first year it was kind of a grind, you know, it was like, yes, these questables were working to create awareness and people were that, that knew us like loved the brand, but, um, it was a challenge. And, you know, we were introducing some new product. We had a, an apparel designer that joined our team and she started creating some apparel, but we had like some of our first pieces had some flaws where like the arm sleeves, like the length of the sleeves wasn't long enough. And another one, like that one of the hems was, would come undone really quickly. So like some quality issues that like we just, uh, in early in a business, it's like, wow, this is really challenging. And, uh, you know, I think we, while the business was growing and there was like something good at the very base, the foundation of this brand, it struggled in a lot of ways, but we, we, it, we did well enough the first year that we were able to get a small series, a invest, you know, round put together. And with that, it helped us survive another year. And we raised another round that allowed us to survive another year. And, um, you know, we spent about the first five years, just like kind of barely making it and seeing growth that was, that was, I think, really good, but maybe not great. Like you, you always compare yourself to some of the other brands out there that just astronomical growth right out of the gates. And you're like, what is wrong with me? Why am I not good enough to make that happen? And, you know, we, we certainly, while we were probably up and right to the always, you know, up, up, up into the right, always, like we definitely had some speed bumps along the way. And, and the, the, you know, the, the slope of that up into the right was not maybe as fast as others that were in, in kind of the consumer space. What was your, I guess, approach? Yeah. What was your approach when it came to managing how much capital to raise, but also spending to like, for example, you know, in the early 2010s, we saw a number of um, when, you know, the DDC channel kind of became the thing um, that we saw brands kind of maybe raise at like software valuations, maybe. um, And, um, and, you know, there's arbitrage opportunities with like Facebook market, Facebook ads and Google. And you, you, you saw quite a few brands raise a ton, spent all of them on, you know, marketing costs and CAC, and then, you know, grew at a rapid pace, but actually weren't, you know, maybe like that, you know, profitable or actually weren't um, it, the economics actually maybe didn't work. I'm just kind of curious when you approached it from like the very in like the mid, you know, 2010s. Uh, per se, and raising anything. What was kind of going through your head, and how you actually thought about e-commerce? Yeah. So first of all, I had some really, I had some really great experience, both good and bad. Uh, the first business, the pool tail business, we were we never raised outside capital, so we were profitable from month one. So we, I understood how to build a business profitably, and um, and in a way that was con- a little more conservative because we didn't have a choice. Um, 
I also had the opposite experience when I was in Brazil with that business, baby.com.br, where, where we saw massive growth. We went from four employees to 300 employees in 18 months. We raised a lot of venture capital very, very quickly. And we were in that boat uh, that you explained, which is like just massive growth, but because we're just dumping a bunch of gas on the fire. And at some point you realize this isn't efficient. And uh, I remember a class I took at Wharton talked about scaling startups and there's like this first phase phase of, of discovery. And then after discovery, it's validation. And then after validation, a lot of times people jump immediately into scaling. They're like, I validated it. I'm going to scale. But there's actually a step in between called efficiency. And what a lot of entrepreneurs forget to do is like, okay, I validated that there's an opportunity here. And, it's, and, and instead of saying, hey, I'm going to go build an efficient business, they say, I'm going to go scale this. And that's when you start seeing these businesses just burning enormous amounts of capital because they never got to efficiency. And so with Cotopaxi, I don't know that we did this perfectly, but I think we were more conservative than others. That's maybe why our growth rate wasn't as, as strong out of the gates, but we built an efficient business. So we've been profitable for the last three years and we built something before we started really scaling it, we got to efficiency so that so we could we didn't have to continue to raise venture capital all the time. No, no, that's that's actually really helpful. And also congrats on being profitable for three years. That's that's incredible. Um and really I'll tell you what, Mike, it is it is an amazing feeling. Yeah. I cannot I cannot over exaggerate how wonderful it is. It takes such a huge weight off my shoulders as a founder to not have to be constantly stressed about when am I going to raise the next round so that we can make sure we can make payroll so this whole thing doesn't unwind right. uh, after all the work we've done. And so uh, it's cool. Yeah. It's like, oh, like managing like burn rate versus revenue and kind of all that, you know, all that goes into that. I mean, it's 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 really, really hard to do and like can't really stress that enough, like how you know, difficult it is to, to actually see a business where there actually is a pathway to profit. Not only that, that there's a pathway to profitability, but you actually got there. Yeah. You know, and, I mean? you know, Mike, I think, I don't know, I don't know exactly, you know, you probably have such a mix of, of listeners, like from entrepreneurs, consumer entrepreneurs, venture capitalists and others. But, you know, my advice to any entrepreneur is like, even if you raise venture capital, the pressure is going to be on to grow really quickly. Like, don't freak out. Like, take your time. This isn't like, this isn't a sprint. It's a marathon, really. Like, you know, we've been building Cotopaxi for eight and a half years. And, you know, we we pretty much doubled revenues last year. We're going to double revenues this year. It's like, there's opportunities wow. for you to continue growing and scaling your business. It doesn't have to happen in year three, year four, year two. Like, build the right business. Build it in the right way. And the scale will come once you've built a great business. But don't get ahead of yourself. Like you end up putting yourself and your, your brand at risk. And if a VC, like they don't really care, like, I mean, maybe a little bit, but like they've got so many investments, like they only need one or two of them to really work. And then you're kind of just like, not that important where as an entrepreneur, you've got one shot, you know, you're going to spend a decade on something like don't put it all at risk with this desire to try to go fulfill unrealistic expectations around how fast you need to grow. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you're the operator, you're the one that's operating the business, you're the CEO, you know, or, you know, involved in the business on the day to day and the VC isn't, exactly. you, know, and, you know, and so, um, and so, yeah, I mean, be, be very, very mindful about, about that as well. Um, how, how did you also, cause I know that you, you know, you opened up stores, you're, you're, you, you, you also have a, have a wholesale business too. Where did you think about when was kind of just on this kind of subject of scale, 
when did you think about going omni channel and how did you approach it or even think about it yeah you know interestingly this was not something that i decided on early in the business i i didn't know immediately when we started that it was going to be an omni channel business I had experienced my very first business, the pool table business was a direct consumer brand. We made our own. This is like, well, honestly, like one of the very first, like this is early 2004. We made our own brand of product. We sold on our own website and we opened up retail stores of our own. It was kind of like the model that everyone's doing now, but in 2004 and with a very boring product with pool tables, you know? So, um, but I kind of, how did you, I, I have to ask, how did you get people to go to, to pooltables.com. What was like the distribution? Was it was it all search? Search and we also used eBay at first. We we create all these listings for our product and people I mean eBay was the thing in those in the early 2000s. So like people are going on there to search for anything and people search for pool tables and they'd find our pool table and someone would buy on eBay. A lot of people would just go directly to our website once they discovered us and uh, we did a lot of, Amazing. you know, paid and we had, you know, we had a good domain. And so we, we got a lot of organic traffic as well. Um, but, you know, free shipping on a thousand pound item and Huge. people did it. Uh, it worked. Yeah. So I had some omnichannel kind of experience. And, but when I started, uh, when I started Cotopaxi, I wasn't sure that was the path I wanted to go down. You know, I seen different things and I talked to a lot of different entrepreneurs and when, a couple of years into the business, it was a time to, for us to decide what path we were going to choose. And I actually reached out to a bunch of founders. I reached out to Andy Dunn, asked him what his thoughts were. He had gone the strategy of, uh, of selling product wholesale. Uh, he was selling in Nordstrom stores and he had his mm-hmm. own stores as well. And his, his argument to me was like, I would, he's like, I would have raised, I can't remember the number he said. I think he said 40 million. I would have raised like $40 million less in venture capital had I started wholesale sooner because it's profitable and it drives the brand growth. So that was really compelling. I talked to Brian Lee, the founder of Honest, you know, the Honest Company with right. Jessica Alba, and he was an early investor of ours and he had some great experience with Shoe Dazzle and others. And so he gave me some advice. I talked to the Warby Parker founders who did done a different strategy. Theirs was only their own stores and their right. own e-commerce, no wholesale at all. And so I got different perspectives. And in the end, we had to make a decision of what was right for our brand. And we decided to go this, this omni-channel strategy. So um, at, what, at what point um, was it the right move um, that, you, we, that, that, that you thought it, 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 it made sense to go omni-channel? We knew immediately. I mean, the moment we opened really? up the wholesale, it was crazy. Uh, we started having demand that was like our growth in the wholesale channel was, was outpacing all of our other growth by like massive amounts. And I think it helped that we started to build the brand on our own first. And so there was kind of some pent up demand versus if we would have started with that in the very beginning, maybe it would have been more challenging. That said, you know, Jeff Curl, the founder of Stance Socks, the sock company, he was also an early investor and I talked to him and he, they started wholesale before they did D2C e-commerce. So you know, there's so many different ways for a, for a successful brand to be built. It's not going to, the same plan isn't going to work for everyone. But for us, having a direct consumer e-commerce site first made a lot of sense. And then we we opened up our first retail store, which was attached to our office. And this was actually, Andy Dunn was the one that suggested this. Like, make sure your first store is like attached to your office so you can like live and breathe that store and understand how it works. And so, uh, you know, we... We opened up our first store and then pretty soon we started getting our first wholesale accounts and um, it, it, they all fed off of each other. They built each other up. Our customer acquisition cost 
was able to be a lot more healthy than our competitive brands because we had this different strategy of people becoming aware of us. It wasn't just through paid search. Not to bring up Andy Dunn again, but to bring up Andy Dunn again, when he, when he came on the show, what I find it was, what was fascinating was of course, you know, Andy Dunn, um, uh, uh, created the term, you know, designator brand. Um, but what was so fascinating with him, um, that, you know, you just said as well was he was saying that, you know, I would advise brands to start retail and online at the, at the exact same, you know, from the beginning. Um, instead of just going, you know, kind of what we did, which was, you know, digitally native first, um, which I thought that was just such like so fascinating because if Andy's saying it, then, you know, as the person that's kind of, you know, one of the original, you know, kind of D to C um, people, I thought that was just really interesting. Yeah, it is an interesting thought. And I, I, I'm trying to think if I agree or disagree. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking of my own experiences, the pool table business, we mm-hmm. started selling online and we opened our first store within months. Uh, within a few months, wow. like very shortly after we opened our first showroom where we sold, you know, people come in and see the product itself. And that that really worked. So in some ways, like, yeah, I agree with that. There's another part of me that wants to say it's really hard to do both early on because you can't do either one well. It's a lot of money. Yeah, it takes a lot of money. Yeah. So it's like you have limited resources. Like, how can you go hire a team to go do physical retail really well while you're also doing D2C e-commerce really well? Like so I'm a little bit conflicted on that, but uh, you know, I go with it. If you're, if, if I'm going to air, I'm going to go with Andy Dunn. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd imagine. Um, I think he was, to be fair, I think he was talking specifically about apparel. Um, when we were, when, when we were discussing, it, yeah. which, um, definitely, definitely makes sense for your conversation, yeah, yeah. um, that, that you had, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it is like, it's, you know, it's, it, it's always, you know, a fascinating conversation to have in terms of when it makes sense to go omni-channel, um, what, if it makes sense to start retail or, or start online, I'd imagine that brands, um, well, how, um, I mean, what, what happened as well, you know, during the COVID period and what was kind of going through your mind, you know, when 2020 was, was kind of coming around, um, and, you know, Cotopaxi, um, at that time was profitable, but how did you also think about, um, about your, your, your sales channels? Yeah. So the business, just to kind of give a picture of where the business was, like we just, we barely kind of crossed into this point where it's like, I, you know, we're starting to make money. Um, and we didn't want to have to raise again. And at the same time, it was like when, when COVID started, it was like, uh, what does this even mean? And like, do we need to go raise another round? Do we, are we going to run out of capital? Uh, you know, our, our retail stores, we closed them. Our retail partners like REI and other wholesale accounts all were closed as well. A decent part of our business was corporate sales. It's brands like Lyft or Google or Adobe, like buying jackets or bags and putting their logo on it. That all disappeared overnight. So like half of our yeah. business disappeared with, you know, in the first 30 days of the pandemic. And it was, it was pretty terrifying. Um, we, uh, day basically, um, March 13th, uh, which was a Friday, uh, the kind of the world started shutting down. We, we closed our retail stores Monday, just a few days later. Uh, we had a, a, an emergency meeting with our whole team, our first zoom meeting as a team, we'd never had a zoom meeting before. And I basically outlined to the team what our plan was. And I'd spent the whole weekend with our executive team, putting together a plan and it was aggressive and it, it involved, we're, we're contacting every single landlord, uh, to basically postpone payments or to renegotiate leases, 
we are going to contact every major vendor, every major supplier, and we're going to do everything possible to reduce costs. Um, I, I told everyone, um, you know, we're going to make a collective sacrifice to try to save our, t- you know, jobs on our team. So, you know, we did, lay- we did, instead of doing layoffs, we actually reduced everyone's compensation. Executive team took a bigger cut and it was like set over, uh, over a short period of time. And then we'd reevaluate over time. And, but we ended up, uh, innovating together. Uh, I challenged everyone to not be fear focused, but to be strategy focused and, we came up with the idea of selling masks and we sold about a million masks over that, over that pandemic. And uh, it saved the business. Honestly, it allowed wow. us to continue operating. It's like our best, our hero product is a travel bag. No one's traveling. So like we just got hit. It seemed like we were getting hit from every angle. Um, but we ended up seeing the, the, our brand rebound ahead of other brands. So when we looked at Lululemon, Nike, uh, the North face, all these other brands that we could get access to data on because they're public, um, Q3, most of them were flat. We saw like 92% growth in Q3 over wow. the previous Q3. So like we rebounded very quickly, even though Q2 was very challenging and Q4 was fantastic as well. So we ended up having a really solid year, everything said and done. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I attribute a lot of that to the way that we reacted and responded as a team and a lot of it due to luck. Um, you know, if we would have been in a different industry or space, we may not have been able to weather it quite as well. Yeah, that's um, no, I, I appreciate you being, you know, very honest and frank about, about kind of everything that, that happened and as well as um, renegotiating your leases and not actually thinking about shutting down your stores permanently, um, which is great. Um, and, you know, um, Mike, that actually, and some of that came from learning that I had from the 2008 financial crisis. Mm. Uh, we had physical retail stores like I, we, we weathered that crisis and it taught me a lot about how to weather these things. And that's why we were able to respond so quickly. I think it's like, I've done this before and it took a little bit longer to figure out. I know exactly what we need to do. And so, uh, you know, it is, I think this, this last two years has been really healthy for entrepreneurs because I think it's trained an entire generation of entrepreneurs of how to respond to it, to a crisis. And so, uh, and which frankly hadn't, it had it been a long time. It'd been 12 years really since we'd had one. And so, the, you know, the, the people just younger than me had never experienced it before. They'd never managed through a crisis like that. So uh, I think there was some advantage to having weathered that previously. No, uh, no. And that's a, that's a really, really interesting um, point. Um, just, and also learning from, from uh, what happened in 2008. Speaking of, of store closings, I know that you recently closed San Francisco, um, which was, I'm sure very, very hard to, uh, to do. Um, since your business is help is you know focusing on you know helping pe- people, did you ever consider maybe shifting resources towards San Francisco to see if you can change, um, help create change or closing up shop, or if yeah. you can just take inside in terms of the actual decision behind um, SF? That'd be great. Yeah, so just catch up any listeners that aren't like super familiar with this. Like two days ago, I posted um, a decision that we'd made, which was to close our San Francisco store based on crime. Uh, we had the store for about a year and the first week we opened the store, the window was smashed in the main window, this huge glass window was smashed in and uh, our store was looted. And that happened four times in a row before we were able to finally get metal uh, security uh, curtains installed. There was a long wait because of the demand in, in San Francisco. And so once we installed those, we thought, okay, we're in, we're in good shape now. But then people just started these groups, organized crime would come in and just walk into the store 
grab thousands of dollars of the product and walk out like no fear. They're not even running. It's just like, it's like no big deal. Like they just grab the stuff and walk out. There's like, police aren't going to do anything. No one's going to do anything. And, um, then we started locking the front door. We'd seen some of our other retail neighbors doing this where they'd lock, keep the door locked even during the day. And then when, when customers knock on the door, which, you know, customers in that area are accustomed to this, you know, you knock on the door, they come and unlock the door for you. Well, Pretty soon we'd, we'd have people that would pose as customers. They'd, a woman would come up to the door, we'd unlock it. And then everyone, you know, they people would rush off from the side. They'd push the door open and they'd come in and steal everything again. It got to the point where our employees were just like, we are terrified. Like we don't even, yeah. we're scared to come to work now. And that, that was the safe. straw that broke the camel's back for me. So two days ago, our, our team had this, uh, this instance and they told me how scared they were. And I said, look, I'd be scared too. Like I wouldn't want to come. And so we're closing the store and we're going to continue to pay them until we can figure out something. And, uh, you know, obviously the options are, you know, go find someone to sublease the space or, um, you know, find, figure out a way to get out of the lease somehow, uh, or you find a way to make it work. My preference would be, let's get the store open again somehow. We can't open it until there's a change. And so that's when I decided I'm going to post about this on LinkedIn and it got a lot of traction. I mean, every major, the Atlantic, you know, the, the most liberal to the yeah. most conservative media outlets have all covered this now. And so um, it's been interesting to watch happen. But all of a sudden, the we're getting the attention of the city and of the police. And like they're reaching out to us saying, hey, we want to have a conversation. How can we change this? And, you know, I think this is like the, the 1970s version of going out and protesting and saying we need change. It's like, I'm going to go post about it yeah. and we're going to go see if we can create some waves that affect a little bit of change. But, you know, when we opened our, our store in San Francisco, the first thing we did is we actually made a grant. We gave money to a local organization that fights homelessness. And so that was like the very first move we did when we opened the store. We're already exploring if we can do more there. At the same time, it's like business. First of all, businesses have a responsibility to do good, not just make money. That's at the very core of our brand. We've our first five years, we gave away more money than we ever made. And it's last year we helped 1.3 million people living in poverty. I'm a big believer in using business to do good. At the same time, we can't solve all the problems. Like as a small brand, like we yeah. can't fix San Francisco uh, on our own. We can't fix the homeless problem there. We can't enforce the law as well. Like we need the help of other businesses, other you know, business leaders, the police, we need all these people to come together and say, how do together do we create solutions for this? And, and it's a bummer too, because it's a conversation you wanted to have with the, you know, San Francisco authorities. And yet, you know, right when you announce when you're pulling out, that's when, you know, when you're actually pulling out business, that's when they want to talk, which is, you know, just, just, just kind of a bummer. Um, Cause it's something that you actually been wanting to actually have, you know, for the past few months. Absolutely. I mean, it, in some ways it's a little discouraging. It's like, why? Yeah. Why wasn't this? Why couldn't we get this attention <laughs> six months ago when this was such a problem for us? Why did we have to wait till it got to this breaking point? And maybe some of that is just human nature. You know, it's like, I don't think these people, it's not that they didn't care. It's just, I think they're just overwhelmed. You know, honestly, they're totally they don't know how to respond. Totally. It's just, it's happening so frequently. It's like, how do you even respond? And so, I, you know, we're probably the squeaky wheel and maybe together we can figure out something that creates a little bit of change and makes it a little better. And uh, I'm feeling hopeful and uh, again, optimistic, optimistic that we can together, we can make this a little bit better. Totally. Totally. Um, you know, I've also read, uh, why don't I also talk about a little bit about your leadership style too? 
um, yeah. and how you think about your leadership style. I read an article about how you, um, when you had like a disagreement with your cousin after, after um, baby.com.br, one of the kind of um, uh, things that maybe was um, a struggle uh, for you was holding people accountable. Um, and I would just love to know, um, as a, you know, a very successful entrepreneur like yourself, how do you think overall about your strengths, your, your, your weaknesses and, and how you lead your team? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I mean, I definitely have, um, some, I have some strengths and I, I definitely have some weaknesses and I've, I think I've, I think my strengths have gotten stronger over the years. And I think my weaknesses have also gotten a little bit better, but I still have a lot of the same weaknesses. So like, you know, that was 10 years ago with that business in Brazil. And I got that feedback and, you know, I knew it was true when he told it to me, it was like, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm not good at this. And am I good at it today? No, I'm still not good at it, but I'm better than I used to be. And, uh, I've, I've made, I've made efforts to get better at it. Um, and I think that's important at the same time, we don't need to be perfect as, as entrepreneurs, we're going to have weaknesses. We're going to have strengths. I think a big part of being a successful entrepreneur is surrounding yourself with people that offset some of your weaknesses so that you can really invest in those strengths and use those superpowers to go build your business. And so that's really what I've tried to do. And I've hired just really great, phenomenal people that are much better uh, at what they do than I am. And I think that's, that's helped, that's helped me a lot. Uh, and I get to watch them do those things much better. And I, I learn from watching them as well. No, I, and I, um, no, and I, I appreciate that. And, and, and I appreciate you. And I also really do appreciate the, uh, vulnerability. What were some of like the lessons that you've learned, um, just wrapping up here about when, um, what, s since you founded Cotopaxi, um, through, you know, the, the ebbs and flows of, uh, of building this brand? So I'd say two of the biggest lessons that I've learned over the years is um, number one, that you have to build culture from the very, very beginning. And it has to be done by design, very intentionally, not by default. My first two businesses, it was by default. It was like we weren't disciplined enough in thinking through what we stood for, what our culture was. At Cotopaxi, before we'd sold a single product, we knew what our core values were. We developed rituals and traditions to reinforce those values. We were going to build our entire brand built around what we stood for, who we were. And so I, I think that's really critical. The second biggest lesson I think I've learned in Cotopaxi versus my previous businesses was how to really build an exceptional team. And you know, in just in the last few months, we hired the CEO of Eddie Bauer as our company president. We hired uh, the chief people officer from Chobani. We hired the chief brand officer from General Mills. Like we've hired these amazing, amazing people. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times in the early days of a startup, like there's two ways to approach hiring. You can either go hire someone that's really young and a little less expensive that is really bright and that can, you figure, hey, this person's going to grow with us. They're going to figure it out. Or you can go hire someone that has done the exact job before at a bigger company, and they're probably taking a small pay cut to come help you, but they are they're coming because they want to build and create. And you know, one of my favorite quotes is by a man named Dieter Uchtdorf, and he says, the desire to create is one of the deepest yearnings of the human soul. It's true. We want to create. We want to build. And so I've really... I, in this business, I've, I've kind of gone this different direction where before it was kind of like, hey, let's hire these really young, scrappy, smart people. And now I'm kind of saying, hey, 
I don't have time for that. We're growing so quickly. I don't have the time for someone to go figure out how to do the job. I need someone to come in and do the job like better than we ever could have because we just didn't know what we were doing. And uh, they're a little bit more expensive, but like they end up paying for themselves. And so I think just building an exceptional team, hiring people that have been there before uh, is something that I think has really made a difference for us. I, um, that's, that's great. Um, and I, and I like the fact that you, that you mentioned how, um, it, how you thought about hiring in the beginning, um, um, in the kind of early days of Code Opacity, how that's actually now evolved, um, quite drastically, um, um, today when you think about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Davis, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, Mike, thank you. This was great. I really appreciated you having me on. And there you have it. It was so much fun chatting with Davis Smith. Davis was incredible. I really appreciate him making the time. Highly recommend following him on LinkedIn. Thank you all. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.